If you were with us last Sunday, you'll recall that we looked at two passages from the prophecy of Isaiah. And this morning, we turn to the prophecy of a younger man who was also one of God's prophets and was so at the same time as Isaiah and in the same region of uh, that where Isaiah was prophesying. And that's the prophet Micah. And our thoughts turn this morning to that part of Micah's prophecy, which was used, as we read, by the chief priests and the scribes to answer the question that King Herod brought to them upon the visit of the wise men from the east. Depictions of the wise men, of course, feature often on Christmas cards. Um, The three of them, as it's supposed, on their camels, following the star as they bear their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And the newborn king, they imagine, will have been born, well, surely, in the home of the current king. And so they go straight to Herod to ask where they might find this child. Well, this, of course, is news to Herod. What new king is this? And he turns to the priests, the scribes, in the hope that they can shed some light on the matter. And indeed they can. The way Matthew presents it is that it doesn't really take them much time at all to come up with the answer. And they quote these verses from the prophet Micah. Now Micah was ministering around the same time as Isaiah and at the time of writing these words about Bethlehem, as Micah was writing, the whole southern region of the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, they were all under threat of invasion and conquest by the Assyrians at that time. That was the context in which Micah was writing That's what Micah is referring to in the opening verse of chapter 5 that we read, where there's this talk of troops and a siege, and uh, they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. They're in a desperate situation at the time of Micah's writing. It probably seemed to many at that time that their days were numbered, and in fact that The whole future of Israel looked to be in doubt, and in certain ways it was. In fact, about 150 years after Micah spoke these words, Judah and Jerusalem would be completely vanquished by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And God's entire Israel project, as some people might view it, It would all be brought crashing down in a most decisive and humiliating way. But actually, all was not as it seemed. Not to human eyes anyway. A child will yet be born to the virgin, wrote Isaiah. By whom God, Emmanuel, will be with you. A child who would be wonderful, counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These things will yet be, regardless of how desperate the circumstances appear. 
And this one who's coming, of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. Upon the throne of David, yes, he's the one promised to David. He'll order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forever. This is going to be eternal and everlasting. And how can we be sure that this will be? Well, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And there are none who can stop his hand. And that child and that ruler, wrote Micah, will be born in Bethlehem. And not only will he be this great, kingly, everlasting ruler, but he'll also be as a shepherd to his people. It will be. Well, let's consider this morning exactly what Micah had to say about the coming Lord Jesus. Because as is often the case with God's word, there's more in these verses than might first meet the eye. What did Micah say? Well, number one, what he said is this. From the least will come the greatest. You, Bethlehem, though you are little, or as Matthew puts it, you are the least. Bethlehem was not much of a place. It was not a large city. It wasn't really noted for anything. It certainly wasn't anything in the world of commerce or education. It had no magnificent architecture. It wasn't a place of the arts and culture or learning. It was just a small, rural, insignificant town in the hills of Judea, south of Jerusalem. Anyone coming from Bethlehem would not have anything in their background that would make them stand out to others or cause others to think highly of them. Oh, you're from Bethlehem and immediately have conferred upon them a degree of respect and esteem because, well, if they've come from Bethlehem, they really must be someone. No, there was none of that. Nothing like that about Bethlehem. In just the same way that those wise men, 700 years later, would never have thought of going to somewhere like Bethlehem to find the newborn king. No, they went straight to Jerusalem. When in fact, Jesus was down the road in backwater Bethlehem. So there was, there was to be nothing striking about Jesus in terms of what some might think of as an earthly pedigree. There was nothing special from a worldly perspective about his mum and dad. Although, of course, we know that Joseph was not his biological father, but he took on that role of, of, as his father. There was nothing special or notable about his place of birth. Nothing special about his father's career. Nothing special about the school he would attend up in Nazareth. None of those things which many people use automatically to assign greatness to a man or a woman. Well, of course he's done well. Look where he's come from and what he was born into. No, none of that. You, Bethlehem, among you, although you're little 
among the thousands of Judah. Even though, Bethlehem, you are so low down on the list. From you, from the least, look what God will do. The only thing really that Bethlehem had been on the map about previously was as the birthplace of King David. But actually, even that only serves the same point. An unknown shepherd boy, the youngest born son in Jesse's family from where? Bethlehem? Would be the future king of Israel? Christ will not become well known because of Bethlehem. Bethlehem will become well known because of Christ. And of course the name Bethlehem actually translates house of bread. So how fitting that the one who is the very bread of life should be born there. And how remarkable were the circumstances that got Joseph and Mary from Nazareth where they lived to Bethlehem where Jesus would actually be born. Worldly factors play no part in greatness in God's kingdom. That's really good news. And that's true even about the king himself. And this is a theme which runs all through the Bible as God so often chooses and uses the most unlikely people. And the Apostle Paul sums up all of that and this principle of how God so often chooses to work at the end of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians where Paul writes this, you see your calling brethren, <clears throat> he's talking to ordinary Christians like you and me, and what he says about them, it's the same for us. Not many wise according to the flesh. But we're not all sitting here, I can go around every single one of you, you can tell me what your PhD's in. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. Anyone here born with a title? No. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. That's what God has chosen. They are who God has chosen. The things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are that no flesh should glory in his presence. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. See, God works in such a way that when his work is done, the only thing that anyone can ever say is this. Only God could have done that. That can only be God at work. Only God could produce this from that. Only God could achieve, could achieve this when that was the starting point. 
all of the wonderful things that we read about concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those things are true of him because of who he is in his person, because of his eternal and heavenly pedigree, if you like. He's all of that, regardless of the earthly circumstances into which he was born and which, for the most part, he lived in. And in a way, to prove that point, God places his son into this world far removed from any of the trappings of reputation or wealth or distinction as the world might consider it. The, the, the earthly circumstances into which Christ was born was a million miles away from any of those kinds of things. And so we also see that for ourselves, none of those things matter. None of those worldly things matter as a Christian. Whether you've been born into abject poverty, whether you've been born into the most dysfunctional home in your street where you live, or if you have been born with a silver spoon in your mouth behind electric-gated grandeur, none of those things are either an advantage or a disadvantage spiritually. Now, God may use those things in your life, but in, in themselves, they neither hinder nor help in terms of your being of use to God. And you can read many biographies of those who were born seemingly with the world at their feet. And when Christ takes hold of them, they turn their back on his all. Even from the least, God brings those who will be great for him. Everything's turned on its head in God's kingdom. God works in ways that the world doesn't understand and would never conceive. And as with Bethlehem, any greatness or usefulness that we may have is all down to Christ. It's all because of Christ. The only reason that we've just been singing about Bethlehem is because of Christ. If it were not for him, we probably would never have heard of the place. From the least, God brings those who will be great in his kingdom. What else does Micah teach us? Well, he teaches us, secondly, about the eternal rule by the everlasting king. Out of you shall come forth to me, one to be born ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Eternal rule by the everlasting king is coming. Now as we go through this little series, you will find that there's going to be some overlap in the themes and the topics that were covered, uh, and that's not a problem it's not something we should try to avoid because it actually shows us 
that there are these common truths about the Lord Jesus running through all of these Old Testament prophecies and scriptures. There is only one person these verses can be speaking about and pointing towards, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one of the things that the gospel writers are earnest to try and persuade us. That's why they keep referring back to these Old Testament scriptures. He's the one. He's the one. And the Lord Jesus is this promised descendant uh, to King David, the promised heir who would reign over an everlasting kingdom. And where better for David's greater son to be born than the birthplace of David as well. And Micah speaks of one whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Let's just think about those phrases for a second. What does that tell us about Christ? Christ, first of all, Micah says, is from of old. As far back as the nation of Israel can trace God's dealings with them, Christ has always been the divine second person of the Godhead who has always been to them and for them the Word of God. We read of those occasions when Christ appeared in the Old Testament scriptures. Those occasions where it talks about the angel of the Lord. It's what uh, theologians called a theophany of Christ. It wasn't Christ incarnate in human flesh as he became in Mary, but it was an appearance of Christ himself speaking. And further back still, as Moses recounts all of earth's early history in the opening five books of the Old Testament, and even before man was created, we read of the triune God, the three who are one, declaring that they will make man in their image. Let us make man in our image, Moses records. And the Apostle John confirms that Christ was active in all the works of creation. But then, notice that Micah takes Christ back further still. Not just of old, but from everlasting. This one is the eternal God. This is the only begotten of the Father, who has always been. The psalmist declares in Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that includes the Lord Jesus Christ. John, in chapter 8 of his gospel, records Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am claiming legitimately the title that God used for himself with Moses. This is the one who John declares is the word who is God and who was in the beginning with God. This is the child to be born in Bethlehem, the everlasting God. And Micah knows it, he tells us here, this can only be God. What man can you point to and say that uh, his goings forth are from of old, 
from everlasting. You, know, you, might, you might look at some of us and think, well, that could be you. But no, it can only be God, can't it? And so the Lord Jesus is worthy of all worship and praise and obedience. For he is, as some of our carols put it, God of God, light of light, very God, begotten, not created. To reject him is the ultimate act of treason against the King of Kings. I hope you realise that. I hope you understand who it is you're turning your back on if you refuse to accept Christ and believe on him. What a dreadful thing it is to disown him and to continue in unbelief and disobedience. Do you understand who it is you're denying? He demands your attention this morning because of who he is. How can you dare to ignore him? And Micah says he's come as the ruler in Israel. Uh, but of course he didn't come as the kind of ruler that most Jews were expecting. The rule of Christ is a spiritual rule in the hearts and lives of all those who turn to him and trust him. We saw not long ago in our study in Romans that there are actually two Israels in the Bible. There's the nation of Israel, but most of them then and today reject Christ as their Messiah. But there is God's true spiritual Israel. Within the nation of Israel, there is this smaller number who are the true Israel, those who are of faith, like Abraham, Paul teaches. Christ's true kingdom, which he said is not of this world. In other words, it isn't a physical, geographical, political nation or kingdom. You can't put a pin in the map and say, there it is. No, you, you, you can only... Point to your own heart if you're a believer and say, there it is. It consists of those people in whose hearts Christ reigns as Lord and King, having turned from their sins and believed on him as their Saviour and their Redeemer. Are you in this kingdom this morning? Is this Jesus, that ruler in your heart and over your life? It's those who are of faith in Christ who are in his kingdom. Where do you stand with this Jesus this morning? He's the promised ruler. He's the head of his church. It's all the same thing. It's all speaking of the same person. And the language of the Old Testament, where this everlasting king is promised, is picked up by Luke, where in chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, he records the words of the angel to Mary. Uh, we consider those with the children just before. What did the angel say to Mary? Of this child, he will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. This is our great God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what glorious and amazing harmony there is throughout all of the scriptures as Christ is spoken of and made known. There's no contradiction. It all just weaves together this wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, Micah says in verse 3, regarding the people in his day, that they would not see these things for themselves. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. Until the time. God will give them up. God will give them up to all manner of distress and trouble as the nation. They will continue in awful rebellion and idolatry. And God will bring his judgment first against the northern kingdom of Israel and then against the southern kingdom of Judah. And it will seem for a while as if the nation of Israel is pretty much done and dusted in God's plans. But only until the set time, until the time that she who is in labour has given birth, The time for that saviour has been set. In Micah's day, that time is not yet. But the day will come, he says, with absolute certainty, when she who is in labour will give birth. And the literal fulfilment of that, of course, will be Mary. And Micah has already told us that not only has the time been appointed... But the place has been too, Bethlehem. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of the time had come, a time known to God, a time always known to God, a time precisely known to God, when the fullness of the time had come, when the fullness of what time? Well, the fullness of what God had said to Micah. The fullness of what God had said to Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets. Just as he's always planned it to be. When that time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. That we might become the very children of God. What an amazing thing the gospel of Christ is. And God has those who are known to him, who will believe on Christ, who will receive him, who will trust in him. And they are the ones referred to in verse 3 in Micah 5 as the remnant. The remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Now again in our study in Romans, we saw that the remnant consists of two things. Well, first of all, it consists of believing Jews. Those of the nation of Israel who will put their trust in Christ, who will have faith. But it also includes many Gentile believers who will also be grafted in. And so the two will become one in Christ. To all who believe on Christ, to them he gives the right to become children of God. And all are made members of God's one true Israel. They all become members of Christ's kingdom. They all become members of his church. It's all the same thing. There's a lot of stuff tied up in these opening verses of Micah 5. How can anyone doubt the person and work of Christ when you see how all of the scriptures speak as one voice about him who would come because he loved us and he came to give, give himself for us.
And then thirdly this morning, there's a third theme which Micah brings out as we look at verse 4 and the opening phrase of verse 5. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord and they shall abide. He'll stand and feed his flock. The Old Testament speaks much of God shepherding his people. In quite a few of the Psalms, God's people are spoken of as the sheep of his pasture. And of course, probably the best well-known and most loved reference in the Psalms is Psalm 23, where David speaks of the Lord as his shepherd. And of course, Jesus himself would frequently pick up this illustrative language of a shepherd with his sheep and declare himself the good shepherd. He will protect, he will provide, he will lead, he will guide. He'll do it with total reliance and he'll do it with complete faithfulness. He will be the one who lays down his life for his sheep by his death on the cross that in his death, as their substitute, the shepherd dying for the sheep, they may have forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. This is the shepherd God has sent. All that any believer ever needs, you will find in this shepherd. The riches of his grace and mercy will prove all sufficient. His love and his care and his kindness are unmatched and unrivaled. You cannot put yourself in hands that are better or more faithful than his. There is nowhere better for your soul to be than in Christ. And Christ, Micah says, will shepherd his people in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. Because this shepherd is also God, his shepherding will be according to all that God is. All the goodness of God, all the glory of God, all the holiness of God is all wrapped up in this shepherd's work for you if you're of his pasture. He'll shepherd his people in righteousness and in holiness and in truth and in justice. He'll do it as the one who knows the beginning from the end because he is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the first and the last and he's your shepherd. He'll shepherd you as the one who sees and knows all things because he is the one who is all wise and all powerful. He will shepherd you as the one who is sovereign. He's the one who shepherded his disciples in such a way that when they thought they were about to drown in the lake, he could stand up and just with a word speak and everything was still and calm. This is the shepherd. That's the authority that he has. And he shepherds his sheep. If you're in his pasture, this is who he is. The one who is sovereign, who can never be overthrown. 
because all authority has been given to him by his Father. His is the name which is above every name. And he's your shepherd. All that God is, is seen in this shepherd. What more could any man or woman want or seek than that which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have him, you have everything you'll ever need in this life and for eternity. And it's only found in him. And so if you reject him, where does that leave you? And what does that leave you with? And Micah says, they shall abide. And again, that's language that Jesus uses, isn't it? Us abiding in him and him abiding in us. To be in his flock and to feed in his pasture is to be in a place of total security, a place of health and healing for the soul. This shepherd makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even on those occasions when he calls me to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear that evil. He's with me. His rod and his staff will comfort me. This is the shepherd who prepares a table for his sheep in the presence of their enemies. He anoints my head with oil and my cup runs over. Surely, surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life because this is my shepherd and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's it. David knew it, do you? This is what it is to have this king as your shepherd. It's found in this man who is God. The one who is the ruler of God's true Israel. The good shepherd, the baby to be born in Bethlehem. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he is great in the earth, as Micah said. Men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and nation are being saved and brought to faith in him. And they'll continue to grow in number. And Christ will continue to build his church until all of his elect are gathered in. He's building his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against that. And he brings peace. This one shall be peace. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men, the angels would say to the shepherds in the field. <coughs> we who once were enemies of God are now at peace with him. What a thing that is. God, whose righteous anger was upon us, he has made us to be at peace with himself 
through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And his anger fell on Christ. His fury fell on Christ. The punishment fell on Christ. That we might go free. That you might be at peace. As we thought about last Sunday evening, as Isaiah declared him, he is the prince of peace. If you want to be at peace, you need to be in Christ. It's found nowhere else. The ultimate enmity that you face is the enmity that exists between a sinner and a holy God. Which means that on that judgment day, you will stand before him guilty and condemned in all of your sin. But in Christ Jesus, you may be at peace, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, and never be separated from his love and secure under his shepherding care and under his kingly rule, hidden under the shadow of his wings. That's who this Jesus is. So come to Christ, all who labour and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Take his yoke on you. Learn from him. He's gentle. He's lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your soul in this Jesus.